Okay, welcome to another podcast. This one is the first one from our new place in Gothenburg. If you don't know the story, it's a bit of a long one, but basically we've been in the Netherlands for the last seven months or so and just moved to Gothenburg, managed to get a a great spot, so we're very happy about everything. But anyway, I thought in this podcast I would do another one on stuff I got wrong and what I think now because that seems to be a really popular format and I think it's quite informative for people so I will jump in. So another few things that I got wrong that I'm going to talk about in the podcast today are uh, that I used to think that nothing beats free weights, free weights for growing muscle and getting stronger. Uh, the other one is I used to think that intuitive eating just meant guessing your macro content instead of weighing it. Uh, the third is that I used to think you have to eat hundreds of grams of protein per day to maximize your muscle growth. And lastly, the fourth point I'll talk about is training volume. I used to think you could accurately give a specific target number of sets per week to do per muscle group to maximize growth. And now I've changed my mind significantly on that. So I think that might get a little long, but hopefully I can keep it concise. Okay, so first one, I used to think nothing beats free weights for growing muscle and getting stronger. And now I think that sometimes machines are actually the best tool for the job. And there's a few different reasons for that. The first one is that specifically in a muscle growth or hypertrophy capacity, really all we're looking to do is put tension across muscle fibers. That's fundamentally what we're trying to do. Now there's a lot of extraneous stuff to that. You can get quite down into details with all that sort of stuff, but that fundamentally means that you don't have to use barbells. You don't have to even use weights. You could use body weight training if it provided enough resistance and range of motion. You could use machines, you know, so I used to be very much in this powerlifting mindset when I first started lifting where the barbell was the basic tool of strength training. And, you know, it offers some real benefits over other ways of training. It gives you a convenient way to load up a lot of weight and to hang on to it and to lift stuff, right? But I also think that free weights in general don't necessarily mean like more muscle activation and therefore more hypertrophy, which is actually what I used to think. I think that when you introduce more stability into a movement, it just gives you an opportunity to have more output. Especially when you're fatigued, I find that sometimes some free weight movements, especially if they're a little technical or they have the possibility of other muscles than your target muscle groups contributing more than you want, just having a tool where you can set yourself up and have the stability and then just kind of go for it, just push, makes a big difference. So I'll give you an example. Barbell back squats, right? Great movement, work really well. Definitely think they're worth having in a lot of programs, but they don't have to be there. One of the big issues with something like a free weight squat is that you're likely to run into muscle groups being limited before you end up at your true like RPE. So let me just explain that a little bit. RPE, if you haven't heard of it, is also called RIR. So that's two different pieces of terminology that actually mean the same thing. And all this is doing is trying to figure out how close to failure we go in a set. Like no matter what the weight is, how close to failure do you get? So an RPE scale is a scale up to 10. A 10 RPE means I couldn't have done any more reps. It was impossible to do a single uh, extra rep. And that corresponds with an RIR or reps in reserve of zero. I had zero reps in reserve in that example. RPE of nine means I had one rep in reserve. RPE of eight, two reps in reserve. Now, the issue with this is that if you're doing something like, you know, 
a preacher curl with your biceps, it's pretty clear when you've hit concentric failure and you can't do another rep. But on something like a squat, if we're specifically trying to train like our quads in a squat, you can start to get some real ugly reps that actually shift the emphasis away from the quads during the set as you get more fatigued. So your RPE for a squat, you know, might you might be able to get like 10 reps with a given weight and that might be your sort of RPE 10 before you hit failure. Whereas if you were specifically looking at your RPE or how many reps you could get with a quadricep bias, it might be significantly less than that. So a really common thing to see is someone doing reps in their squat, their quads get fatigued and their brain basically goes, well, I got to keep standing up with this weight on my back. So you see this movement pattern where the hips shift back, the person's kind of tips forward a little bit and they still manage to stand up. It looks a little ugly. It looks a bit more like a good morning. And essentially what's happening there is that your brain is shifting more emphasis on to your hip and back musculature to complete the movement rather than keeping the tension on the quads because the quads are getting fatigued. So this is a great strategy to just continue to lift the weight, but it's not a great strategy if our goal is specifically to hypertrophy of the quads. And so in this situation, we might be better served by being in something like a hack squat machine, for example, where all we need to do is basically go up and down. And because of the way the machine is oriented and how we fit into that machine, we have a lot of external stability. You can kind of just keep going until you hit failure on your quads. And it's really obvious when that happens and it's really difficult to deviate from that technique. So I guess that's kind of a really long-winded way of saying that when you have more stability and more external references, you get better rep quality when you're fatigued and it's clearer when you're close to failure for a given muscle group. So that doesn't mean that we necessarily have to do just free weights or just machines or whatever. We can obviously use a, a mix of them and we can strategically perhaps use more machine work later in a workout when we're more fatigued or something like that. But I used to think that just across the board, if you're using free weights, it's just superior. And now I don't think so at all. So with that said, hopefully that gives a little bit of insight. I'm not going to labor that one too much more. The next point, I used to think that intuitive eating just meant guessing the macro content of your food instead of weighing it. Now, the problem with intuitive eating is that the terminology has been I suppose, distorted a little bit and misinterpreted from its original use. Originally, intuitive eating came out as a term used by some dietitians who published a book called Intuitive Eating in the 90s. And this was a specific set of guidelines. It was a framework for dealing with disordered eating. And so that was the original reference of intuitive eating. And of course, because of the name, we have this, uh, you know, people hear it for the first time and they go, oh, I know what that is. It just means that you're eating based on your intuition, based on what you feel, which is kind of the case, but it's not specific enough to how it was originally intended. So I used to think that intuitive eating just meant guessing the macro content of your food instead of weighing it like you would when you're tracking calories. But now I think that intuitive eating is a set of guidelines for how to mindfully behave around food and think about your body. I've posted a bit before about intuitive eating and I've spoken a little bit about it before. And I don't think that tracking your calories and intuitive eating necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. In the original guidelines for intuitive eating, I would say that under that framework, the authors or the proponents of this method might be quite against weighing your food. Um, maybe most of them would, or maybe some wouldn't for sure, but I do think that there's a lot of crossover that can be used here. So. The guidelines are very useful to use no matter what 
method you're using to control your nutrition. And I guess the key focus of it is that it is weight neutral. And I think that's quite a handy thing because often we get really focused on our weight and how we look, but really the process of focusing on our health and our performance can get aesthetic improvement for us without being exclusively focused on weight, right? And so I think that's a real advantage of a weight neutral approach. So I'm just going to run through the 10, you know, original guidelines within this uh, intuitive eating framework, just so you can kind of understand what it what it means and how it might integrate. So uh, the first one is to reject the diet mentality. The second one is to honor your hunger cues. The third is to make peace with food, uh, give yourself permission to eat essentially. Uh, The fourth is to challenge the food police. There are no good or bad foods necessarily. Fifth is to discover the satisfaction factor. Six, feel your fullness. Seven, cope with your emotions with kindness. Eight, respect your body. Nine, movement. Ten, honor your health. So the the general idea essentially, you can can just Google this intuitive eating and and I find the language a little bit, (laughs) almost cultish in a way. It's quite assertive language, put it that way, the way they explain these things. But I think the general ideas are really, really helpful. So as an example, like feel your fullness and honor your hunger are essentially telling us to pay attention to our biological cues and to develop an awareness of them. And I think that this is key no matter what dieting, uh, archetype you're using, whether it is like a paleo approach, low carb, high carb, tracking your macros, intermittent fasting, whatever. I think that that is a really helpful skill to develop. And so that's something that we can integrate with whatever we're doing. Um, another one is coping with your emotions with kindness. And so the idea here is that, um, you know, find ways to nurture yourself to I suppose, deal with your emotions that doesn't necessarily involve food and understanding your own emotions, paying attention to them and then dealing with them in a productive way as opposed to just emotionally eating to try and deal with them, I think is a really good guideline to use no matter what you're doing as far as your diet goes. So I think there's some really cool things that we can use from intuitive eating and it it extends, as you can see, far beyond just guessing what calories are in food, right? It's much deeper than that, and it kind of surrounds the the emotional environment and the food environment. Um, and so I think that in that sense, if you can kind of get a handle on intuitive eating, it can be a really helpful addendum to whatever you're trying to do with your diet. So I recommend looking those up. Uh, like I said, I don't use this exclusively the way it's written, but I like a lot of the concepts and I kind of integrate this with tracking macros and things like that. I, I would say most people who come to me do end up tracking macros, uh, just the kind of demographic I deal with. So very handy thing to learn how to behave mindfully around food and how to think about your body. So worth looking at. Okay, next one. I used to think that you have to eat hundreds of grams of protein per day to maximize muscle. And this goes back to my my Poliquin days, I suppose, where he was recommending to eat three to four grams of protein per kilo of body weight. So for me at the time, it was close to three to 400 grams of protein a day, which is probably double what I eat now. Um, so pretty massive. I do think that... Most people probably don't eat enough protein. And if I get someone coming in and they're fairly 
new to this whole nutrition and health thing, I would say that one of the first things we'll focus on is making sure that they get in enough protein. Just really important for overall health. It's been shown to help with things like sleep, but obviously supports your muscle mass, uh, maximizes the amount of weight you lose from fat as opposed to muscle. Just a huge amount of advantages to having adequate protein in the diet. Now, the recommended daily allowance in most major countries is around 0.8 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. And I apologize for using kilos and not converting to pounds here for anyone who uses the imperial system, but uh, all the research kind of uses the per kilogram. If you want to get these numbers in pounds, just take the numbers I'm telling you and divide it by 2.2 and you'll get the pound amount. So 0.8 grams per kilo of body weight um, is the standard recommendation across the UK, US and Australia. There's research showing that doubling that just leads to better outcomes. So I think that if people are eating the recommended daily allowance, I mean, they need to get above that, to be perfectly honest, and you'll get much better results from that. But, uh, you know, there's a diminishing returns aspect to this whole thing. And certainly once we start getting above about two grams per kilo or maybe 2.2 grams per kilo, let's say one gram per pound of body weight, to continue to push above that in some cases is certainly warranted. And if you really prefer eating that much protein, there's no danger in it, but it's not necessary and you start to get diminishing returns. If you're a bodybuilder deep in prep, sure, let's go up from there. Um, if you're someone who just really prefers protein in general, sure, we can go up from there. But at some point you start to take away from your ability to fill out your calories with other macronutrients. Specifically, I see quite a lot of people who eat very high protein, but then kind of don't get enough carbohydrate in. And that can be a bit of a problem if we're trying to maximize exercise performance and help them get in enough fiber and enough food variety and this kind of thing. So it's really important that we recognize that it's not dangerous to go very high protein. There have been studies that have used over four grams per kilo and have found no ill metabolic effects from that. However, in most cases, I think that's just completely unnecessary. So in most cases, I would say getting between 1.6 grams per kilo and 2.2 grams per kilo is plenty to build muscle and you don't really need more than that. And we, we have to remember as well that if you're trying to build muscle, you're probably going to be in a calorie surplus and that reduces your need for protein because when we're in a, in a deficit, one of the main things we can do to help preserve muscle mass um, is to provide that nutritional signal via increased protein intake. You know, so in that case, maybe going a little bit higher is warranted if you're in a long deficit and, and looking to lose a lot of weight. But if we're in a calorie surplus, we have plenty of energy around to support muscle mass. We don't have that same risk of muscle loss and therefore we probably just don't need as much protein in the first place. So now, I've changed my mind. I think enough protein is still really important, but it's a lot less than some people think. And certainly getting 1.6 grams per kilo, and if you wanna go a bit more, two grams per kilo or something like that is probably enough. Now, just a couple of little caveats here. The first is that if you're eating plant proteins that don't have as many amino acids or, or don't have the same amino acid spectrum that animal proteins do, you might just want to shoot a little bit higher. So if I'm recommending 1.6 grams per kilo in terms of protein, and you're getting that completely from plant sources, you might want to bump it up a bit, maybe go to 1.8 or something like that. And the other thing, of course, is that if you are particularly heavy, if you're particularly big, but not a lot of that is lean mass, say you're overweight or obese, you might obviously end up with really big numbers going by this recommendation that I'm giving you. So it might be worth just kind of calculating what your ideal weight range is based on your BMI. And then from there, you can base your protein intakes off of that ideal weight range. So, you know, let's say you currently weigh 100 kilos, 
but your sort of quote unquote healthy weight range is maybe around 75 kilos or something like that, you can calculate your protein needs off of the 75 kilos as opposed to the 100 kilos and you'll be just fine. Okay, cool. So the final topic I'll hit today, I used to think that you can accurately give a specific target number of sets per week to do per muscle and that will maximize muscle growth. And now I think that the relative change is much more important than the actual number of sets being done. Now this whole topic is a lot to unpack. So I don't think I'll go into a huge amount of depth here, but just a few little things that we want to think about with training volume. The first is that it's very, very difficult to equate the training volume between exercises. So we know that something like a dumbbell press and a cable fly will both train the pecs. But I think it's really difficult to try and equate, you know, is one set of dumbbell press the same as one set of cable flies? I think that's really hard to say. Is it equally stimulative? Is it equally fatiguing? Is it equally damaging to the muscle? Probably not, but how can we quantify that? And the same goes for any exercise, right? So I think it's very difficult if we're looking at a total target number of sets to actually standardize that across exercises in the first place. They all have a different range of motion, a different resistance profile, uh, all of these things, right? So that's a bit of a challenge. It doesn't mean that we can't use set numbers as a bit of a rough target in the same way that when we eat, you know, we, we aim for 200 grams of protein. We're not getting exactly 200 grams of protein. It's a guess. We're going to be somewhere within range, but it's not going to be exact, right? So that means that set numbers can still be handy, but that's just one little caveat. The next thing is that all of the research that we've done so far has differing parameters. You know, we, we are not necessarily standardized for tempo and rest times and how close to failure we're going. Yes, a lot of research does standardize, try to standardize how close to failure we're going, but I think there's not a clear definition of that and nor is it well handled across a lot of studies. That's a topic for a different day. So it's difficult to then sort of equate all of this research, one study to another. It doesn't make it useless. Again, we've still got plenty of data we can go off of, so that's no problem. But then it comes down to trying to give this to an individual. And we see that studies will obviously report averages. If you dig into the data sets, you'll find that the individual response to training is really broad. So that means that when we're coming to trying to work out how much training volume we should do as an individual, it's like... Well, we don't know how well we respond compared to the people in the study. We're not using the same training program that they're using. We don't have the same training history that they have. And so therefore, I think the relative changes probably matter more than the actual number of sets being done. I don't know that you can really say there's going to be an appreciable difference if you had someone come to you and you tell them, yeah, you've got to be doing 12 sets a week on your quads versus 14 sets or 15 sets or 16 sets. I don't know that you're really going to see too much difference between that necessarily, or that you could say in advance that there's going to be a big difference between those. But if someone comes in and they have been doing quite low volumes for some time, so let's let's say the general recommendation in the literature is anywhere between 10 sets per week on a monomuscle group, up to 20 sets per week on a muscle group. And that's rough ranges. It's actually a really broad range if you think about it. Um, you know, but it gives us a little bit of a target. So if someone comes in and they've been doing five sets a week on their quads, we can say, okay, that seems relatively low based on what we know from the data. So now we want to go, okay, well, let's get them closer to 10 to 20 sets per week. Maybe going to 10 sets is going to be a really big change because now we're doubling their training volume from five to 10 sets per week. 
if you took it to 15 sets per week or 20 sets per week, it's now tripling or quadrupling their training volume, which is huge. It's a massive change. But you could also have someone come in who's been doing 10 sets a week on their quads already, and you could still say, hey, that's kind of low. It's on the lower range and they want to grow more, so let's increase their training volume. Well, going from 10 sets per week to 12 sets per week or 15 sets per week is not as big a change as going from five sets per week to 10 sets per week. So it's all relative to where you are when you come in from your previous training, right? I do think that in general, the literature does hold this sort of principle as true that's been quite repeatable across different demographics in that doing more training volume, so long as you can recover from it, does tend to result in more hypertrophy gains and more strength gains as well. And so using that general principle, we can kind of say like, okay, cool. If you do more work, provided you can recover from it, you're probably going to get better results. Um, but that doesn't necessarily give us a target number of sets to do per muscle group. And I really don't think we're at a point where we can say like, oh, well, we should do this many sets for hamstrings because of whatever reason, but we should do that many sets for deltoids because of this reason. You can probably infer that some muscles handle certain exercises or training volumes better than others just based on their architecture based on their fiber types that kind of thing but i don't think we're really at a point where we can say like oh yeah uh hamstrings do really well on 8 to 12 sets a week but pecs do really well on 15 to 20 sets a week like we're just not there so i think that's a really tough thing and and sometimes people get really obsessed with trying to hit a particular set number thinking like, well, I'm not going to grow optimally unless I get at least 10 sets per week on a body part. And that's just not true. In the same way that like, you don't suddenly start growing way more if you go from eight sets per week to 10 sets per week. Um, it just doesn't work that way, right? So just a little bit of food for thought, I guess, that I used to think that you could actually go in and say, yeah, we should be doing this specific target number of sets per week to maximize muscle growth, or at least be within a specific range. Whereas now I think that it's really difficult to prescribe that for an individual and that probably the more important thing is to look at the individual's training history and then to make relative increases or decreases based on their prior training, based on where you want to take them in the future, and then kind of factoring in a lot of the other factors that are going to contribute to things like muscle damage and fatigue, like tempos and rest periods and number of reps done and how close to failure they go and things like that. And that's all educated guesswork. That's You're not able to actually go in and say like, this number of sets is better than that number of sets necessarily. All right, cool. Hopefully that made sense. Um, once again, hopefully you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to give me a rating if you did, if you didn't, and you want to give me like a poor star rating, then <laughs> just don't do it. Uh, <laughs> simple as that. Um, also, if you want to share on social media, that would be really cool. I'd love to be able to say thanks for that. So if you share, please remember to tag me so I can say thank you. Other than that, I'll stop there. Hope you have a great week and I'll chat to you soon.